First Thessalonians chapter five, beginning in verse 19. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. In chapter 5, Paul has given a series of exhortations, warnings, instructions on how we are to live in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming soon. In chapter 5, we are to be watchful in verses 1 through 11. We are to be respectful to leaders in verses 12 and 13. We are to be mindful of one another in verses 14 and 15. We are to be thankful in verses 16 through 18. And now Paul warns the believers to be careful in worship in verses 19 through 21. And to exercise faith in daily conduct. That's what we'll see in verses 22 through 28. So Paul will move from the topic of life in the church to discipline in the church in verses 14 and 15, the standing orders for the church in verses 16 through 18, to worship in the church, or what I'm calling life in the spirit in verses 19 through 22. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the Christian life is to be a life of prayer in verse 17, of praise in verse 18, and worship in verses 19 through 21. As a matter of fact, one Bible commentator wrote, quote, Life in the church is life in the Holy Spirit, unquote. And I really believe that. Life in the Holy Spirit is more than just being able to embrace the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Life in the Spirit means a willingness to be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit, to be instructed by the Spirit. And guess what? When you are filled with the Spirit and controlled by the Spirit and instructed by the Spirit, you come to a place where you appreciate the Word of God. And you appreciate the Son of God. Here is the idea. We as believers in Jesus Christ are to honor God's Spirit. <clears throat> and oddly enough, the Spirit's message is this. That Jesus came and Jesus died and Jesus rose. In other words, the Spirit's message is believe in Jesus and trust Jesus and love Jesus. The Holy Spirit's main concern is to convict people of sin and then to point them to Jesus. And that might come as a shock and as a surprise to you, but the Lord Jesus Christ is is the sum and the substance, if you will, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When people ask the question, is this a spirit-filled church, you can, you can mark my words that there is no such thing as a spirit-filled church that doesn't point people to Jesus or proclaim Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. So Paul is going to deal with this tension between Order and opportunity in corporate worship. Order and opportunity, because early on in this thing called Christianity, when the very first Christians came to Christ, when they began to gather together before First Thessalonians was written, before the book of James was written, Christians would gather together, and they, as they would gather together, they would sing songs of praise. And then Paul writes about the fact that some would have a word from the Lord, that the Holy Spirit would speak. There would be words of edification. There would be words of, of encouragement, if you will. And so between order and opportunity, sometimes the church service became so 
ordered that there was no opportunity for the Spirit to actually speak. And so the Bible teaches that there's a role and a function that the Holy Spirit plays in the life of the believer and the life of the church. Remember, the New Testament refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Jesus and the Spirit of truth. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as another comforter and the helper. Remember when Jesus says, I'm going to go, but if I go, I'm going to spend Send the spirit who will be with you and who will be in you. And so in verse 19, Paul writes and he says, do not quench the spirit. And some have suggested we could paraphrase this statement as stop putting out the spirit's fire. And I like that. The Holy Spirit isn't a force that we manipulate. The Holy Spirit is a person, a powerful and promised person. And the Holy Spirit's role is to empower and enable the Holy to enable the believer to respond to the things of God. The Holy Spirit is described as a fire. And the reason why, in part, is because the Holy Spirit burns away sin and softens the heart of the believer towards the things of God. The Holy Spirit is sensitive to sin, but also sensitive to the grief and pain and sorrow of others. The Holy Spirit regenerates. The Holy Spirit acts. The Holy Spirit speaks, teaches, guides, comforts and gives understanding. And the Holy Spirit is completely aware of the circumstance that you find yourself in this morning. The Holy Spirit is aware of the, the emptiness or the darkness or the loneliness or the terror or the fear or the drama that you're experiencing right now. So much so that for some of you to hear the Holy Spirit is very difficult because you're so absorbed with your pain and you're so absorbed with your sorrow and you're so absorbed with your grief or you're so absorbed about the future. And so part of the point, not only of singing the songs when we come here, it isn't just because we sing songs because that's what you do in church. It becomes an opportunity for your heart to hear. People are sometimes afraid or confused or uncertain when the Bible speaks of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible uses symbols or metaphors to describe the nature and the character of the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit, and we sang about it this morning, like living water in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. Remember, he talks about that the, that the Spirit is like living water coming in, that there would be fountains of joy that would burst inside of you. And of course, water speaks of refreshing and cleansing and washing. And so it becomes a type and a picture of the ministry of the Holy Spirit washing and cleansing from sin. The Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit like a mighty, powerful, rushing wind, invisible yet Powerful in Acts chapter 2, verse 2. And the Holy Spirit, and the Bible pictures the Holy Spirit like oil, which anointed the prophets and the priests and the kings for their ministry duties in the ancient world. Now remember, oil was used medicinally, not like medical marijuana. Medicinally in the sense that you would anoint the sick with oil and the oil would provide soothing and healing and those soothing and healing principles and properties become a description of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. We also see the Holy Spirit pictured like a dove, which represents gentleness 
and peace for the believer. The Holy Spirit is represented as a still, small voice that God uses in order to speak to the internal circumstances of our life. It's described that way in 1 Kings chapter 19. You'll remember when Elijah was listening for the voice of God, it didn't come in the wind which broke things apart. It wasn't in the thunder and the lightning, but it was in the still, small voice. And of course, the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit like fire, which speaks of God's holiness and the judging of sin in the life of the believer. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter four, verse four, it says, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst or taken away the blood from the middle of her by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. The reason why the Bible uses that metaphor is this powerful presence that comes in order to provide a mechanism so that you would know that your sins are forgiven and that guilt is gone. Gordon Brownville, in his book, Symbols of the Holy Spirit, tells about the great Norwegian explorer, Roald Amundsen. He was the first person to discover the magnetic meridian of the North Pole and to discover the South Pole. And during one of his trips, Amundsen took a homing pigeon with him. And when he finally reached the top of the world, he opened the bird's cage and he set it free. Now, I want you to imagine the delight of Amundsen's wife back in Norway when she looked up from the doorway and of her home and she sees this pigeon circling the house. What do you suppose she's thinking? The thing that she's thinking is, my husband made it. He's alive. And see, that becomes the type and the picture of the, of the presence of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost when the disciples had had seen Jesus die and then seen him rise from the dead and then seen him ascended to heaven. And then the promise of the Holy Spirit comes. There is this sense of certainty. Jesus is in heaven. The reality of the gospel is true. Our sins can and are forgiven. The certainty of our home in heaven is sure. In other words, here's the idea. Jesus is alive and victorious and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And guess what? That's the message of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why this becomes such an important thing for each and every one of you is the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to speak into the heart of the believer becomes the mechanism whereby you can know the Bible is true. The promises of God are, are true. And so the metaphor of quenching is quenching a fire. Warren Wiersbe writes, fire speaks of purity and power and light and warmth. And if necessary... Destruction. When the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives and in our churches, we have the warmth of love in our hearts and light for our mind and energy for our will so that he melts us together so that there is harmony and cooperation and he purifies us so that we can not just resist sin so that we can walk away from it. But guess what? The believer can choose to ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit. The believer can hinder the leading of the Holy Spirit. We can throw a blanket over the Holy Spirit's influence with our stubborn heart and with our wicked pride. And we can call a halt to the work of the Spirit the moment that we say, I'm not going to obey God. I don't want to hear from God and I don't want to obey God. I don't want to obey him in my life and I don't want to obey him in my church and I don't want to obey him in my marriage. I don't want to obey him on the job. The moment that you say, I am going to resist and repel 
the work of the Holy Spirit, whose job is to convince and convict you of sin and of righteousness. The idea being that there's something horribly and terribly wrong. So that you would receive Christ, so that you would walk in Christ. The word quench means to drown or to stifle or to snuff out. It was used in the ancient world to describe when you would blow out a candle. And so the Holy Spirit is always at work in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit is at work inside of you. And part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to get you to honor God. But more than that, to know him and to know his Will. And by the way, the believer quenches the Spirit's word in several different ways. Let me give you a short list. I'm sure that you could add to the list. You can quench the Spirit, number one, by ignoring Him, number two, by neglecting Him, number three, by disappointing Him. Number four, by procrastinating. In other words, it isn't just about ignoring the work of the Spirit. It isn't just about neglecting the work of the Spirit. It isn't just about disappointing the Holy Spirit. It's by saying, you know what, I'll listen later. I'll listen after I'm done with this particular relationship or I'm done with this particular job or I'm done with this particular habit or I'm done with this particular vice. But there's the Holy Spirit wooing and working and tapping and knocking and saying, how important is this to you? You know, we as believers may want to blame the devil. We may want to blame circumstances for our lack of power or a a conspicuous absence of the presence of, of the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. But the Bible tells us that Jesus has defeated the devil. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says, For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested or made known that he might destroy the works of the devil. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. But then there's a voice inside of you that whispers, I still am a slave to sin. I still listen and respond and submit to what other people have to say or my flesh. But Paul writes and he says, This isn't true, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. The point that Paul makes is that when Jesus died on the cross, in a very real sense, so did you. The death of Jesus wasn't just simply some courageous act of sacrifice, some amazing example to show you how you can live under extreme duress. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus died for your sin. Now, this becomes very, very important because every preacher is left with two things. The revelation of God. (laughs) And the research by human beings. Things that they can look up. But revelation can never be substituted. There's only one way that I could possibly know that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And that's by reading my Bible. There's only one way that I could know. That the power of Jesus to save a life, to redeem a life, to transform a life doesn't consist in with your ability to be religiously observant. It is the power of God to change you internally when you come to grips with the fact that apart from the life of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, there's no hope for you or me. That's the idea. 
we quench the Holy Spirit when we pretend that the message of the Holy Spirit is not true. The Bible teaches that we can quench the Spirit, but we can also grieve the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The word grieve means to pain or to vex or to sadden. And the reason why the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit is righteous. The Holy Spirit is utterly, completely, absolutely offended by sin, repulsed by sin, disgusted by sin. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we allow impure things in our thinking and in our life. When we behave immorally or we act unjustly or we embrace those things that are contrary to the nature and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the Bible says that the Holy Spirit can be quenched and the Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit can be blasphemed. And you may not know what that word means, but it means to speak ill of. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 31, and, and also in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, it's the idea of resisting the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And again, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is resisting the ministry of the Holy Spirit over and over and over and over as the Holy Spirit presents to you the truth. Jesus loves you. I don't care. Jesus died for you. I don't care. Jesus is willing to change you. I don't care. Jesus is willing to do that work of transformation. Jesus is willing to take the guilt away. Jesus is willing to take the darkness away. Jesus is willing to take the fear away. And over and over again, there are stubborn people who say, I don't care. I don't want that. I don't need that. I don't want that. The Bible says that Ananias and Sapphira attempted to lie to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. By keeping a part of the thing that they said that they had given to God. Now, by the way, it wasn't a sin for them to keep apart for themselves. The sin wasn't that they sold a piece of property and gave some of the proceeds. The, the sin was that they sold a piece of property. And in order to appear like that, they were something more than they really were. They lied about their circumstances. And Peter said. You haven't lied to men. But you've lied to God. You can lie to your husband and you can lie to your wife and you can lie to your family and you can lie to your friends about your spiritual circumstances. I love God. I go to church. I read my Bible. There's nothing really wrong with me. I'm okay. And all the while, the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, saying there's something desperately wrong. There's something missing. There's some emptiness. There's there's an issue that you have yet to resolve. And so the Bible says, don't quench the spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. It's in that that same context. Look what it says in verse 20. Don't despise prophecies. Paul's comment seems to suggest that the gift most rejected by the Holy Spirit skeptics was this gift of prophecy. What was it about the about the gift of prophecy or prophecy that caused some to despise them? Well, I'm going to suggest something to you. There were people in the early church who would say wild and weird things. 
And rather than judge the false prophet and judge the false prophecy, some people decided to forego prophecy altogether. We're not told, but perhaps some in the, in the church in an atmosphere of excess began to say all kinds of crazy things. And then they attributed the Holy Spirit to the source of their crazy things. I've seen it throughout my ministry. People have come into our church and said weird things. They'll stand up and say, For saith the Lord, Ronald Reagan is the Antichrist. And I'll have to get up and I'll have to say, that's not true. Ronald Reagan has a lot of problems, but he's not the Antichrist. Now remember, remember, remember. Part of the challenge that we have is that people suggest that they're making a proclamation of truth and they cite the spirit as the source of that truth. But some, rather than deal with the real difficulties that come with people who make extravagant claims, is that sometimes the claim is true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, Paul wrote, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So if whatever is being said isn't edifying, it doesn't warn or it doesn't comfort, it's probably not from God. Paul repeatedly speaks of the gift of prophecy, quote, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets. That's what it says in first Corinthians chapter 12, verse 29, Paul writes in first Corinthians chapter 14, verse one, run after love, pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. The gift of prophecy seems to include a special ability to speak forth the message of God. In other words, prophecy isn't limited to predicting the future, although there may be an element in a time where someone prophetically speaks. And it is, in fact, a message concerning the future. It was Dr. F.F. F. Bruce who was fond of saying that prophecy is declaring the mind of God in the power of the spirit. I like that. Prophecy is Declaring the mind of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It's the it's the not just the suggestion, but it is the declaration that God is thinking about things. And what is God thinking about? Particularly when he's thinking about you. What is it that's going through God's mind as he considers your circumstances and your heart and your ministry and your future? What is it that God is thinking about you? Here's what I know for absolutely certain that God's thoughts as he thinks about you is focused on your friendship with Jesus. Your love for Jesus, your relationship with Jesus, your walk with Jesus. It isn't about how he can elevate you to the position that you think that you deserve. For some of you, his thought is, how can I humble you in such a way that you will hear from me and you will know unequivocally that it is me who is speaking to you? That if ever there was a time to abandon your sin, if ever there was a time to walk away from rebellion and disobedience, if ever there was a time for you to quit flirting with the world, if ever there was a time for you to draw close to Jesus, it's now. In the early days of the church, while the young church was growing and the New Testament scriptures were being written, these prophecies were openly and orally transmitted. So in a sense, the prophets spoke by means of direct revelation, and it would appear that prophetic utterances would deal with individuals or churches or or with the future. As a matter of fact, there's an example of that in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. 
there was a man named Agabus who prophesied. And he said, then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Well, being the Roman first century geek that I am, I happen to know about Claudius Caesar. I happen to know that Julius Caesar was succeeded by Augustus Caesar and Augustus was succeeded by Tiberius and Tiberius was succeeded by Caligula and Caligula was succeeded by Claudius and Claudius was a man who was Caesar from the time of about 41 A.D. to about 55 or 56 A.D. And during the course of his time that he served as Caesar, there was a, a gigantic famine that, that consumed the whole Mediterranean rim. Now, what's the point? The point is that the famine was predicted by the prophet in order to alert the church to make a necessary provision during a time of famine. Not all people with the gift of prophecy occupied the office of a prophet, so much so that the prophecy then became a mechanism whereby it came to mean telling the truth. As a matter of fact, in um, Acts chapter 21, verse 9, it says, now this man Speaking of Philip, had four virgin daughters who prophesied. In Acts 15, 32, it says, Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets, also exhorted the brethren with many words and strengthened them. So the ability to tell the truth wasn't limited to men, and it wasn't necessarily limited to women. It wasn't for the old, and it wasn't for the young. Each and every person, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, had an opportunity to hear from the Spirit concerning the truth of God. So Paul reminds them that it doesn't make sense to despise the wisdom of God, particularly when the Spirit of God is telling us something about how we should think or how we should act or how we should believe or how we should order our life. Or conduct ourselves among ourselves. So Paul's admonition is listen carefully. Do not treat the instructions of the Holy Spirit lightly. Here's what he's saying Are you ready to listen to the Holy Spirit? Are you willing not only to listen to the Holy Spirit, but obey? the Holy Spirit when he speaks to you. Let me just help you with something. Let me help you save some headache and some heartache in your life. There are times when the still small voice of the Holy Spirit will speak to you and will instruct you and will remind you. And some of you are thinking, well, how do I know it's the Holy Spirit? Listen, it's not a demonic spirit that's telling you to go talk to your neighbor about Jesus. It's not a demonic spirit that's telling you <laughs> that when the Bible says, if you don't work, you don't eat. It's not a demonic spirit that's telling you edify one another. It's not a demonic spirit saying respect the leaders. It isn't a demonic spirit that's saying live in peace. It's not a demonic spirit that's warning the idol. It's not a demonic spirit that comforts the faint hearted. It's not a demonic spirit that says uphold the weak. It's not a demonic spirit that says be patient, resist revenge, rejoice always, pray continually and everything give thanks and don't put out the spirit's fire. Does that sound like something Satan would say? I don't think so. And so Paul builds his case. The instrument for prophetic utterances were people. 
But unfortunately, some people were distorted and, and abused certain statements. You see, here is one of the challenges. Whenever you're dealing with people, when it comes to the revelation of God or the word of God, there is room for error. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, this is what Paul says. If you are going to say something that is true or false, you have to live by the rules. In 1 Corinthians 14, 37, it says, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. You know what he's saying? This isn't just me telling you what I think. This is me by the power of the Holy Spirit instructing you in these measures. Now, Paul made it clear that the prophet exercises self-control. Those who spoke were, were not to speak with uncontrolled frenzy. The Bible says, but the fruit of the Spirit is self-control in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. When the Spirit is, of God is working through the person who prophesies, the person exercises self-restraint. When the Spirit of the person is acting like a wild and a crazy person, if a person runs around the building and foams at the mouth and judo chops the air, what do you suppose that means? Oh, well, that, guy, that guy's filled with the Holy Spirit. I've got to tell you something. Being filled with the Holy Spirit isn't foaming at the mouth and swinging from the chandeliers. I once asked a person, is the fruit of the Spirit the same as the character of Christ? The answer is yes. And then I asked this question. Has it ever been your experience that Jesus is weird? And you know what the right answer is? No, Jesus is not weird. Jesus responds in such a way that it always makes sense. There were a group of people who for many years would come out with some sort of statement saying, God offends the mind in order to reveal the heart. No. God doesn't offend the mind in order to reveal the heart. In other words, to suggest that Jesus or the Holy Spirit is weird is is coming to an inappropriate conclusion. Paul writes that the prophecies must be consistent with the God who's already revealed himself. In other words, whatever takes place in the context of the church, if it contradicts the scripture, if it contradicts the nature of God, if it contradicts the character of God, this prophecy is not from the spirit of God. Well, the person used the name of Jesus and he said, thus saith the Lord. No, Satan and false prophets are real. There are people who are willing to counterfeit both the word of God and the work of God by making unbiblical claims. And that's why John in in first John chapter four, verse one says, beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirit, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. What are you saying? I'm saying exactly what the scripture is saying. When someone makes a declaration and they say, this is from God. Then guess what? You need to check it out in relationship to what the Bible has to say. So if a person says Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. Well, what did he say about Jesus? Well, he's the spirit brother of Lucifer. Mm, that doesn't sound right to me. You see, when a person makes a claim, you have an obligation to evaluate that claim in light of what the Bible has already said. Paul warns us to measure all things by what has already been revealed by Jesus and the prophets and the apostles. Paul commends the Bereans for searching the scripture with readiness of mind to see if these things are so. And so it comes in verse 21. Look what he says. He repeats it. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. 
So Paul gives the believer the obligation to test all things. You know what? It's been my experience when I test certain things. The person will say, don't you trust me? And I remember, of course, the famous lines of Ronald Reagan to Mikhail Gorbachev. Well, trust but verify. No, we laugh, but that's exactly right. Trust but verify. The, the, the expression test or prove is the Greek word dokimadzo. Doesn't it sound like exotic Japanese food? Yeah, I'll have some sushi and some dokimadzo. But it, it has nothing to do with Japanese food. It has everything to do with learning by experience and trial. That's what it means. Learning by experience and trial. Well, what am I supposed to take, take from that? I suspect that the immediate context is the testing of the spiritual gifts and even more specifically, the issue of prophetic utterances. But I think the text is giving us permission to broaden the testing into, look what it says, test all things. The Bible teaches the reality of a genuine Holy Spirit, genuine prophecy. So if there's a genuine Holy Spirit, and there's genuine prophecy, and there is a test, then that means that there's also a counterfeit spirit and counterfeit prophecies. This last Friday, we had our little coin club meeting. Many of you know that I collect coins. And I, I just love coins because of their historical significance. Their artistic significance. It's just fun for me to think about. I'm holding in one hand a coin that is 400 years old, 500 years old, 1,000 years old, 2,000 years old. I can't in just one hand hold literally hundreds of years of historical information. Now, I also have in the top drawer of my desk counterfeit coins. I have counterfeit coins from Ephesus. I have counterfeit coins from Israel. I have counterfeit coins from the United States of America. And remember what a counterfeit is. It's something that is designed in order to deceive. I think I told you guys the story that the last time I was in Ephesus, we were getting off the bus and this guy comes up and he goes, coins, ancient coins, ancient coins. And I go, here, let me take a look. And he put it in my hand and I go, that, that's fake. Oh, you want real ones? Is that the way to begin a relationship? Oh, sorry. I didn't know you wanted the real thing. When people are looking for truth for their life, they're looking for the real thing. And so there are several tests that I found to be very helpful. Number one, does whatever is being said line up with the truth of the scriptures? Trust, but verify. Number two, does it acknowledge and obey the lordship of Jesus Christ? And number three, does it seem consistent with the character and the righteousness of God? You see, the gift of prophecy was to be exercised in the church and the believer had to conform with the guidelines that Paul gave. Paul speaks carefully and deliberately to the Galatians. He says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you to the grace of Jesus Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we preach, let him be accursed. So the second test is similar to the first test. The scripture is clear. What does the prophecy have to say about Jesus? Number one, what does it have to say about God? Number two, what does it have to say about Jesus? In Revelation 19, it says, for the, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
So if a prophet comes to you and says, hey, I have a new word for you. I'm Jesus. And you go, let me, let me see your hands. Mm, I don't see any holes. Let me see your feet. Mm, there doesn't seem to be any nail prints. Let me see your side. I don't see the impression where the spear pierced you. Now, walk through the wall. Dude, you can't walk through the wall? Well, Jesus could walk through the wall. Therefore, I determine you're not Jesus. You see, prophetic utterances that fail to identify the true Jesus, the prophetic utterances that fail to point people to Jesus, are to be rejected. And by the way, you would think that that would be enough of a test. What does it have to say about the Bible and what does it have to say about Jesus? But guess what? There's a, a moral test. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Fruit isn't limited to their doctrine, but it's also reflected in the way that the person lives his or her life. And so if the person says, I'm a prophet, but then they steal all your money. If they say that they're a prophet and they run away with your wife or your husband. If they say that they're a prophet, but they live a life of wickedness and immorality. Guess what? Even and listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Even if what they're saying sounds plausibly true. I reject it if their life is wicked and immoral. If the person meets the minimum standards of doctrinal consistency, personal piety, well, then do we accept them as coming from God? Not necessarily. And let me tell you why. Because the person who gives a judgment or a prophecy, again, it still needs to be submitted, if you will, to the leaders of the church who exercise minimum principles in discernment in evaluating what is being said. And so, the Bible says, hold fast to what is good. That means take possession of that which is genuinely good. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Someone once said, well, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, I do throw the baby out if the baby is Rosemary's baby. Some of you who are old enough to remember what that means. But some of you are way too young to have any idea of what I'm talking about. Rosemary was played by a woman named Mia Farrow, who, according to the, the story, was giving birth to the Antichrist. That's what I mean. You would throw out a baby? No, that. The baby is the devil's baby. That's that's the whole point of the little illustration. And then it says abstain from every form of evil. What does that mean to abstain from every form of evil? The word translated abstain is apecho. It means to keep a distance. It actually carried with the idea to shove away from your bosom or to to push away from yourself or to distance yourself from something. The emphasis is on the believer's complete avoidance of any evil teaching or any evil behavior. Nowhere does the scripture permit believers to expose themselves to the influence of that which is false or that which is evil. As a matter of fact, over and over again, there are repeated warnings to run away in 1 Corinthians 6.18, in 1 Corinthians 10.14, and lots and lots more. If you're confronted with this, you run. And the term evil, of course, is a reference to something that is harmful or malignant. Something that distorts the truth. And see, if you come to the place where you go, is this harmful? Does this distort the truth? And the way that I would put this is this way. Does this distort the truth about the Bible? Does this distort the truth about Jesus? Does this distort the truth about what God has revealed? 
Someone said only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. It sounds good, but I would change the last line. Only one life will soon be passed, but only what's done by Christ will last. You know, we all want to do things for Jesus. And they fall into two categories. Helpful and not helpful. But make no mistake about it, everything that Jesus does is helpful. When Jesus does it, when Jesus initiates it, when Jesus accomplishes it, you can always rest assured that it's something important and good and eternal. That's the point. So walking in the spirit and walking in the truth is going to take great courage. And you need to remember three R's. Number one, remember the goal is to be an encouragement, like it says in verse 11. Resist the cheap imitations of spiritual of spirituality or false spirituality. Automatic praying instead of praying without ceasing. Release your fears of what others might say or think. And so we're back to what it's been saying in Verse 11, all the way down to verse 23. Edify each other. Respect the leaders. Hold the pastors in high regard. Live in peace. Warn the idle. Comfort the faint-hearted. Be patient. Resist revenge. Rejoice always. In everything, give thanks. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't despise prophecy. Abstain from every form of evil. And in verse 23, which we'll look at next week, count on God to be there to help you all the way through. But that's what we're going to talk about the next time we get together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what the Spirit has to say. Lord, we realize that human beings' opinions, though interesting, are clearly not transforming. Lord, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. I pray for the person who is so buried in an avalanche of cold, icy, frigid sin that they feel like they're being smothered. Lord, I pray that the warmth and the fire of the Holy Spirit will burn in the presence of this deep, dark, cold, frigid storm. And that, Lord, you would be able to speak to their heart. That you would be able to give them instructions about what they need to do. In the circumstance that they find themselves. And that if they're far from you, that they would turn to you. If they're living a life of guilty indulgence, that, Lord, you would cause them to repent and to turn from their sin and to turn to the Savior. And that they would embrace Jesus. That they would know him and love him and serve him. Lord, we pray that we would test what's being said in light of what has been said. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.